Dirty, Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry Minutes. Our wives will kill us. The Scorpio still survive. Is Anne Mary Deacon alive? Hi everyone, this is Tim from Dirty Harry Minute. While chief host of the podcast, John has continued to milk Dirty Harry until the cows come home, you may have noticed the other regular Dirty Harry Minute co-hosts, Trent and I, dropped off the podcast as we didn't have much to say beyond an already exhaustive minute-by-minute analysis of the feature film. Crazily, John tells me he's mapped out another year's worth of standalone content to satisfy the three of you still listening to this series of podcasts. But who am I to tell you not to, or more importantly, to deny you, the invaluable listeners? Anyway, I'm pleased to introduce some more fan fiction we've brought together. A huge thanks to our contributing authors, Dave Allen who wrote The Lion's Share this time around, even though he just saw the movie a few weeks ago. Bartek Kaspirshuk, part guest of many episodes, one part of the Spit and Polish podcast, and Brian Lockhart, one part of Marine Corps Minute, the only other podcast reviewing an Eastwood movie minute by minute. Check both of these fine podcasts out. Thanks also to our narrators who kindly gave their time and tonsils in no particular order. Rick Ingham of Mad Max Minute, Niall McGowan of Bat Minute, Sean German of All Kinds of Minutes, Walt Murray and Alan Sanders both of the Wilder Ride Minute, and finally, last but not least, Daniel Thompson and Martin Anderson. I hope you guys enjoy it. The Boy Written by Dave Allen. Read by Rick Ingham. From about as long as he could remember, Chico Gonzalez was torn between two worlds. Actually, he was torn between many worlds, between centers of gravity which all laid claim on him. He was torn between his parents' and grandparents' roots and the American world he inhabited. His home in Farmington, California split the difference between the two between the Catholic Church where he was an altar boy and the rough barrio vatos who ran his school and the streets on which he lived. It is the human condition to have to fight to find and claim one's place in the world, but Chico's struggle was a little bit harder than many others. Good thing Chico was one tough hombre. He was a fighter, literally and metaphorically. He was tough, though not particularly tough-looking. Rather, he was wiry in a distinctively Hispanic way. Like a fun-sized Ricardo Montalban or Jose Ferrer, his Anglo girlfriend Norma would often tease him as resembling. Aspiring gangbanger Tito Rodriguez was in this respect Cheeto's opposite, tough-looking though not actually all that tough, even by the standards of a wannabes. He was trash, a 14-year-old punk with delusions of grandeur, He got away with a lot because his older brother Manalo was a big figure in the gang, the 13th Street Churros. Chico had known Tito since birth, 
and feared and loathed since the monster had set firecrackers to some stray dog's tails when they were kids. Bored and out to impress, one day Tito came across Chico coming home from church in his altar vestments. Thinking he spotted easy pickings, Tito started laying into Chico, mercilessly punching, kneeing, and kicking him. God was apparently nowhere to be found. As it so happens, Frank Rusty O'Shea Jackson was moseying through the neighborhood. He was on his way home from a visit to his friend Maria Sanchez, and hence was in a good mood. This good mood rather abruptly left him as he witnessed the neighborhood boys scuffling. Rusty had enough street smarts to see the scene for what it was, a bully laying into someone clearly smaller than himself. Rusty yelled out for Tito to leave Chico alone. The older man felt a twinge and then paused. He knew Chico, of course, but after all these years he now saw something he had not noticed before. In the way he took his licks and did a good job defending himself against a much bigger opponent. He didn't have the training or the guile of a fighter. Nor did he have the body or the reflexes of one. But he did have the instincts, and that is something you cannot teach. As the cliché goes, it ain't the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. Rusty ripped Tito off the smaller kid, throwing him to the ground in the process. Tito and his hangers-on fled. They all knew who Rusty was. Truly one of the few things in this world tougher than Mexican gangbangers are alcoholic washed-up Irish ex-fighters. Both Rusty and Chico sat there panting, adrenaline coursing through their veins. They each knew implicitly that some kind of bond was formed. Who knows, maybe God was present after all. In the coming months, Rusty taught Chico how to box for free at his gym, the crying Seamus. Chico grew into a formidable and respected presence in the neighborhood. The Churros offered him membership, but he knew better. He knew that way lay death and destruction. He and Rusty had an unspoken agreement that he would make it out of the hood and make the world a better place. Rusty would never have scraped Chico out of the gutter just to let him crawl back into it. For a kid from the wrong side of the tracks, Chico had always made good grades at school. The local priest, Padre Perez, and now Rusty where he could despite the limits of his own year 8 education saw to that. Thanks to a half-sports scholarship on account of his boxing prowess, he got a partial scholarship to San Jose State University. He decided to major in teaching and sociology. His final thesis, Boxing in Barrios, an Insider Perspective on Outsider Perspective Culture, was awarded Best Undergraduate Thesis in the State of California by the American Sociological Association. But academia wasn't for him. He hadn't left the streets entirely. He somehow got it into his head to enter the police force. Stick close to the street, but be in a position to help those on it. And with his fists as a last resort. There was still a state-mandated diversity hiring program left over from the Brown administration under which one city, San Francisco, was still looking to employ more minority police. Norma begged him to apply, though it would mean a drastic uprooting of life for them both. And so, he finally did. The SCO was a nice, quiet place compared to L.A., he reasoned. 
What would he actually have to do there? The most he would have to deal with would probably be a parking ticket. His Hispanic heritage, coupled with numerous boxing awards and his solid academic credentials, meant he was a good pick. He was duly hired, started the following April. It had all happened so quick. Was he ready to move? His abuela kept telling him he should make a decent woman out of Norma. While she was a gringa, at least she was Catholic. A lot to think over. No man, what's that for? After the shootout at the club, I figured I needed more firepower. Yo, man, we gotta talk seriously. Who do you think you are, Clint Eastwood? Dirty Rosewood? I would uh, recommend either a 9mm or a 45. Very nice. Walla Walla. It's like I, uh, movie star at Dirty Herald. Yes. Come on and make my day, Juve. <laughs> Hot Mary. Written by Dave Allen. Read by Niall McGowan. What was going on? Mary Hastings had smoked a little marijuana before, but she'd never taken acid. She was pretty straight overall, having only had her first sip of beer in her early twenties. And when she had taken a few puffs of the dirty weed once before at a party, she couldn't quite explain what she felt. She had felt something, but whatever it was, it subsided within half an hour or so, and then she was pretty much back to normal. She was supposed to be minding the acid for her friend Sandra. Sandra had acquired it from her boyfriend, Bernard, but was paranoid her parents would find it, so she gave it to Mary to stash. Of course she got it from Bernard. He was a way-out-there kind of dude, who was fond of dropping sexual innuendos to Mary, especially when it was just the two of them together. Such a lech. Maybe that's how hippies are, though, she thought. She couldn't be sure, but what she was sure about was that she was going to take a little bit. And now. She heard stories about the brown acid at Woodstock, but that was a different ball game. She figured that she would take one of the tabs, and it would wear off pretty quickly. By the time Sandra arrived to pick her up to take her to the party, she'd be back to normal. Her friend might be pissed at her for helping herself to some of the product, but she'd get over it. She put on Sly and the Family Stones, There's a Riot Going On and closed her eyes. She massaged her temples, waiting for the drug to kick in. She'd seen a guy on a sofa in a tenderloin loft party do this. But after about ten minutes, she started having doubts about the efficacy of this drug. I mean, sweet nothing was happening. Another ten? And she was convinced that someone had been duped. By the time one side of the 33 had finished, she believed the drugs were duds, as firmly as she believed that the sun would rise the following morning. She briefly contemplated ringing Sandra. Maybe there was time to pick up something else to take to the party instead. Hopefully she'd be thankful and not angry that she had dipped into the stash. Nah. It'd be funnier to talk about when she got here. Besides, it might trigger their argument, again, about her weight and impulsiveness. Not over the phone. That could wait. 
She sighed and put the record back on. Got back to her jigsaw puzzle, and time flew by as it often did when she was puzzling. She liked walking around her apartment. She just realized how much damn fun it was to walk around her apartment. It was surprisingly warm in San Francisco this spring. She stripped down to her smalls and put on her alpaca poncho over her naked, fleshy chest. She reflected that she wasn't wearing clothes now because she didn't need them. Somehow, she'd come to understand that she didn't need to wear clothes. Somehow, just walking around the apartment had revealed some deep truth of the universe to her. Mary suddenly became distinctly conscious of the blood running through her body and felt a strange kind of itch on the inside of her stomach. She felt like egg rolls. She could almost taste them. She stopped and laughed, a small chuckle to herself. It was like she understood the blood running through her system. She jumped when she saw her pile of underwear in the corner morph into a rabbit? But then, why wouldn't there be a rabbit in her apartment? Really, when you think about it, it wasn't that silly. Maybe there were other rabbits, she and others just weren't aware of. As Mary started lightly dancing, pondering these and other similar questions, like, what would it be like to dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? She realized she liked the idea of invisible rabbits everywhere. Hey, who wouldn't? If her clothes were not rabbits, they were, they could, well... They were like snow, as in a snowman that could be made into anything. How had people not noticed this before? How had she not noticed this before? She had the idea that she would start the record again and see if she could make her snowman sing by moving its mouth. But it didn't seem to work. No, wait, that wasn't it. It was that it felt... Disrespectful? She was having trouble with a lot of the things she was experiencing. Maybe she had a migraine coming on. She reclined back in her chair and enjoyed the album's deep, drug-addled, off-kilter grooves. As she stretched out, something stopped her mid-yawn. It looked as though the flowers on the curtains were singing. Was she losing her damned mind? A thought occurred to her. Maybe the pressure of the Scorpio killer menacing the city was getting to her. She heard a knock at the door. Finally, her friends had arrived. As she opened the door, for a split second it occurred to her that the Scorpio killer might be on the other side. But luckily for her, it was just Bernard, and she felt happy for a second. Until she realized somewhere in her lizard brain, that this was not good, because Sandra was, at present, nowhere to be seen. The very last time she'd been alone with him, he had gotten a bit fresh. Bernard told her, Sandra's just parking the car. She'll be here in a few minutes. That might be true. He'd lost his license the previous year drink driving and just hadn't bothered to apply again. Her migraine had definitely arrived now, and Bernard was definitely not a snowman any longer. 
it's in the suitcase? Mary asked him. She couldn't really follow his answer. Something about fancy dress and the party coming to them? Bernard was getting awfully close. Until they were both interrupted by the loud metallic sound of trash cans crashing from outside the windows. Just in time. Before she could even think, get your boyfriend away from me, Bernard fled from her towards the other room. Poor Sandra. Mary might be fat, but her friend sure was a klutz. She walked to the window to look out into the alley. All right, I owe you one, because you saved my life tonight. Here. Captain Danko, you are now the proud owner of the most powerful handgun in the world. Soviet Potterin 9.2 millimeter is world's most powerful handgun. Come on, everyone knows the Magnum 44 is the big boy in the black. Why do you think Dirty Harry uses it? Who is Dirty Harry? You can call me Al. Read by Walt Murray. Al hadn't known Collins well. DiGiorgio had spent the most time with him since the now-dead officer had transferred over from Daly City. He and Collins had become fast friends, probably on account of the artery-clogging carbohydrates they both chugged down on a daily basis. Al rubbed his eyes. He'd been in the office since 3 a.m. The rooftop sting hadn't worked, and now there would be hell to pay. The mayor knew it was the chief's idea, so Al had to stand back and not claim too much responsibility. What could have gone wrong, Al wondered. Harry was the best shot in the whole department. Still, nobody stood a chance against a machine gun. Jesus, it was lucky nobody had been killed. This would be another nail in the coffin for police intuition. The mayor would undoubtedly use the mess as an excuse to call all the shots. That son of a bitch had some pull in the police union. Harry had given a quick report to Al. Then, unusually, he said he was going home for a shower and coffee. Harry was probably out there doing something he'd rather them not know about. But he didn't live on the arm and never sold a job, as they say in the cheap paperbacks. Hell, he never so much as put in for overtime. Al could allow him some slack. He almost wished Harry was corrupt. He almost felt he could live with that reality. Since he'd been promoted to lieutenant, Al had had to bust his old friend down a few times, particularly after the Fillmore incident. There were witnesses who said the perpetrator had gone to lower his butcher knife. Maybe if he'd just lowered his erection instead, he wouldn't have been blown away. Al almost regretted gaining his promotion sometimes. He had to put up with the shit from both higher-ups and lower-downs. His wife seemed all too happy to pocket the extra money, but seemed to forget the extra hours that took him away from home. He spent less and less time at home these days, probably more than Harry did, though, he chuckled. His kids called him Rocky when he did make it through the door. He was more irritable than usual, and that really made him sad. He'd make it up to them when he could. His office phone buzzed. He picked up the receiver. Mary? Lieutenant, said the longtime secretary, the mayor is ready for you. Okay. Gun holster. Just my portable telephone. I was just saying to Tim, maybe... Oh, get it. Sorry, I just thought it was and what you're thinking, did I make five or six calls? The question is, do you feel lucky, punk? Well, do you? Clint Eastwood. Spot on. 
That's that. I'm going with it. Al stepped out of the coal pit and into the mayor's office. In front of him was the city head, his aide, and two suits he didn't recognize. The topic of conversation, whatever it was, was evidently just coming to an end. But can you do it? The aide was in the middle of asking his boss. Just about, but don't count on it, said the mayor, shaking his head and looking down at his watch. I'll be calling in a lot of favors, and this is just my first term. One of the suits spoke up. Sir, there's always the holding funds for SOMO. SOMO, queried the mayor softly. Yes, you remember the development near Folsom and 2nd Street, south of Market? Oh, yes. Not sure that name will ever stick. Perhaps. There's enough there, not tied to escrow. I think we can get at it, sir. Nothing we'll end up in concrete for. There'll be interest to pay, smirked the suit. There always is. Very well. The suits nodded and left without uttering as much as a word as they left the office briskly without fanfare. The mayor looked down into the contents of what appeared to be a shoebox. Lieutenant, he said, you might want to have a look at this. You can call me Al, said the lieutenant. Right, Al. What do you make of this, said the mayor, gesturing down. In the box were a bra, some female underwear, and what appeared to be a tooth caked with dry blood. Ouch. There was also a legal pad with text written on it. The mayor read out its contents slowly. Al could scarcely believe what he was hearing. A teenage girl kidnapped, raped, and now buried in suspended animation until an extorted municipality doled out a ransom. Al shifted the weight of his body from one foot to another. He had a pair of hemorrhoids developing over the last few weeks. He must be more stressed than usual. Where did they find the box, sir? Does it matter, shot back the mayor? Maybe a little significant to where he lives, observed Al. Golden Gate Park, near Staten Street. Mean anything to you, quizzed the mayor irritatedly. Not readily, sir, but any small detail can often help in the long run. Yes, right, said the mayor by way of unspoken apology. What would you suggest we do? Well... We could, and do you feel confident to do it after last night's episode, asked the mayor. Look, Officers Callahan and Gonzalez did their best. They did an admirable job, I hear, sighed the mayor. But I think we finally need to pay this creep. Pay, questioned Al. That's right, there's little alternative. The mayor's eyes darted down to the shoebox. Al didn't know it was his turn to speak, but he took a stab. Yes, sir, I'll make the arrangement, said Al, delicately picking up the box. It's all in this letter. No deviation. Understand, said the mayor. Right, said Al, as he headed for the door. By the way, said the mayor, picking up the phone, how's your little beaner doing? Didn't the mayor know that he was Italian, Al thought? Maybe it's just the way he talked. Fine so far, sir, Al said, closing the door behind him a little louder than usual. Prick. Al came through his office door towards his desk. Mary, he yelled out, get Gonzalez and Harry in here, pronto. Once the door was closed, he took out some scotch from his desk drawer. He sprawled the photos down on his desk and sat down. His eyes poured out upon the images of what looked like a kind, ordinary teenage girl. In his youth, 
you'd only get these quality photos on your confirmation day if you were that lucky. He made a silent promise to pray for the girl later. His faith still illuminated his inner life, sometimes. He sipped long on the bottle before storing it back away out of sight. As he struggled to make sense of it all, he absentmindedly twirled the colorful tie that his daughter had bought for him last Father's Day. Christ, this little girl will be my daughter's age. And now she was dead. Wasn't she? You couldn't be sure. Oh, hell, of course she was. Look at what that psychopath had done to Charlie Russell. If that poor boy had been white, Al was sure his death wouldn't have been relegated to page four of the Chronicle. Harry better not give him any shit about the mayor's plan. Though he had to admit, even he had smarted inside when the mayor had said, that's why we pay a police department. Nobody had seen a raise in two administrations, and manpower was spread very thin. His counterpart, Briggs, was struggling to even operate the motor pool. He heard Harry and Gonzalez enter the office by Mary's desk. How do I explain it? Just jump in, I guess. He's taking a girl. <gasps> oh, oh, my. It's a mess. I've been robbed. Oh, boy. <laughs> shh, shh, be quiet. They can still be here. Who? The Supreme Court. Who? <laughs> the robbers. This is a 375 Magnum. <laughs> One of the most powerful handguns in the world. It could blow your head off. The only problem is... I don't remember if I shot four rounds or five. So you have to ask yourself, do you feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Go ahead, make her day. The Man in the Chair by Byron Lockhart. Sid Kleinman was 25 years old when the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Like much of the nation, his sense of duty found him leaving his life behind to head off to war. Sid was already involved in the amateur radio community, tinkering with his ham radio to produce the best sound possible. It was a perfect fit when he found himself stationed with the Marines' radio intelligence platoon. Throughout the war, he had honed his skills with all things radio. The end of the Korean War saw a drawdown in the U.S. military, and Sid, having had enough of war to last a lifetime, took his opportunity to retire early from active duty. He returned home, and with the help of a small business loan from the VA, he opened Sid's Electronic Emporium in his hometown of Portrero Hill, San Francisco. Sid was at peace in his new life. For him, the war was truly thing of the past. That is, until the day the war walked into his shop. Inspector 71, Harry Callahan. Sid could not forget the day this one-man war on crime walked into his life. He was taken aback by how much the inspector resembled a young soldier he once met during his Korean War days. The kid was already a Medal of Honor winner, but that didn't stop Sid from teasing him that if he wanted a real challenge, he'd ditch the army and join the Marines. 
even without the uncanny resemblance. Sid right away felt a kinship with Callahan. He had heard all the reports over the police dispatches, a perk of his line of work, and he knew they called him Dirty Harry. Never for a second did Sid think that Harry was a dirty cop. He saw on the television what happened down in the Fillmore district and knew that Harry was simply the kind of cop to get the job done. Sid had seen what had been going on in his beloved city in recent years. It made him sick. His favorite liquor store had been robbed 14 times in just about three years. Shop owners had taken to arming themselves as crime had gotten out of control. Sid knew Harry was one of the few good guys left that cared more about justice than those bureaucrats downtown. He had made a promise to himself to assist Harry if ever given the chance. Harry's requests started out small. A recommendation for a better CB radio than what was provided by SFPD. Harry started asking Sid to boost his radio or upgrade his antenna for his squad car. As time went on, the request became a little more frequent and a little more involved. Harry would often seek Sid out for all manners of surveillance equipment. Sid started getting the impression that just maybe these off-book Surveillance requests weren't just for stakeouts. Sid would often joke to himself he may have found out why Callahan is called Dirty Harry. Nevertheless, Sid knew that if Callahan came calling, it was important. The phone rang at Sid's electronic emporium, and on the other end of the line was Callahan needing another of Sid's surveillance packages. Sid was well aware of the Scorpio killer running loose in San Francisco and had suspected Harry was going to be the one assigned to catch him. Callahan was going to swing by with his new partner, Harpo or Groucho, was it? Sid stopped trying to learn the names of Harry's partners. It wasn't wise to get too attached. Harry had a bad habit of going through partners. His last partner, Dietzik, was recently sent to the hospital with a gut shot. Sid couldn't help but feel responsible for the loss of this partner. He had failed to mention that his new two-way earpieces fail when below ground or in tunnels. He'll have to remember to mention it this time. Sid would never forgive himself if Harry lost another partner because of the failure of his gadgets. When Dietzik was shot, Sid considered getting out of the game. But there was a madman to catch. And of course, Sid was going to help Harry. He's the one constant in Harry's one-man war on crime. He's Sid Kleinman, Dirty Harry's man in the chair. You know what this is, punk? The 45 Magnum, the biggest handgun in the world. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, did he fire five shots or six? Feeling lucky, punk? 
Tunnel Fucks by Bartek Kaspishek. Read by Rick Hingham. They never listen. They never, ever listen. They could have let me be, or taken the hint and realized I'm not some civilian on a run, but those dudes just had to try and have it their way. What were they expecting? Only two types of people ever enter tunnels. Tunnel gang fucks who don't introduce themselves, and guys like me on a mission. In a way, it's almost poetic. I've been dealt all the cards I need to play in order to save the girl's life, but it's always people who think they have power over me that stand in my way. I have the light, and they know it, and they come out of the shadows to ruin my pace when they see me. And that's just the tunnel gang. I can just swing my bag, aim a gun at them, and carry on. On the other hand, my superiors force me down a path that isn't my own, like having me be a dancing monkey for the single most dangerous person in the Bay City area, running from place to place with only a single tram ride as my break, and a phone call from a madman as my reward for not falling behind. Of course, I did volunteer for this particular mission. This is the sort of thing that suits dirty Harry Callahan. The wife is dead. I'm a lot happier on the streets than I am at home, where pictures and memories of her are. The stress of the job keeps me going, and I don't trust anyone else to be able to handle the work I accept in the way that it should be handled. Maybe DiGiorgio could handle it, but there's no way in hell he'd be able to run even a fractal portion of the way to this tunnel. I'm certainly not going as fast as I was when I started running, but my hair is still in pristine condition. DiGiorgio has guts, but I don't think it's the stress of the job that they're filled with. My money's on Linguini. At least I can shine a light on the guy. The Scorpio Killer, though. There's something about him. I've heard him speak through the telephone, and as cold as he sounds, I could hear a light, contradictory inflection in that dark voice. He's enjoying this. He only has three things. One is instructions for me to run, and another is whatever the hell is awaiting me at the end of this marathon. He probably doesn't know about the third thing, which is the misfortune I keep experiencing through investigating this case. When I follow a suspect through an alley and look into their homes only to realize that they're innocent, I get Hot Mary's neighborhood watch beating the shit out of me. When I run through a tunnel, I get an unexpected fucking tunnel gang fixated on my bag. What do tunnel gangs even do anyway? Just wait for anything to pass through? Is this what they live for? Are they obsessed the Great Escape fans? Is this some sort of game to them? I don't know. If they did take my bag and find the money within, what would they spend it on? I guess it'd have to be a private tunnel to call their own. Whatever they are, they certainly have no affiliation with the Scorpio Killer. But it's a fact that they unknowingly helped further endanger a kidnapped girl whose life is on the line. That is my misfortune. I've almost reached the proverbial light at the end of this dark tunnel. Once I'm out in the open, I need to brace myself for whatever comes for me next. I can hear the next phone ringing, and all I can smell is the heavenly scent of hot dogs. Hot dogs truly are my favorite. Can't get enough of my usual meal at the diner. I guess that's yet another reason they call me Dirty Harry.
I tell you, the secret of great acting is sincerity. Once you learn how to fake that, you're laughing. The male lead is a strange breed, and their sexuality is always of keen media interest. Uh, take, for example, someone like Clint Eastwood. I'm sure, the guy's a stallion, but he was also a mayor. And he spent a large part of his professional career shooting his weapon inside chaps. Hey, Clint! Hey, man! Clint! Clint! Hey, Clint! I got a 65p Magnum here, man. It's the most powerful ice cream in the world. Clean a man's head blown off. You feel licky, punk? Ah, come on, make my dairy. Go Ask Alice. Written by Dave Allen. Read by Sean German. Walter Randall was confused, yet somehow excited. Whatever it was he felt, and he could not be sure what it was, he could not stop staring at his Alice Cooper record covers over and over. For he knew the rock god would understand him. Even if there was nothing Walter could directly take from the songs, then there was at least that fact. From now on, he'd make sure everyone called him Alice. If rock and roll couldn't offer a little escapism now and then, what was it for, exactly? Life was hard enough for everyone, let alone a closeted gay teen in 1970s America. Walter needed an escape ever since he had been caught fooling around with another altar boy at church. The priest may have acted like he had seen nothing, but Walter's mother knew all about it the following day. She had tried to broach the subject before dissolving into tears. As for his father talking to him about it, forget it. Alice was thankful it had not come to that. Somehow it had gotten all around the congregation, through whom he would never find out. Alice's mother would be all too happy to pretend she didn't know. She was as likely to start gossiping about her son's homosexuality as she would be to cover her left foot in Tabasco sauce and start chewing it. Alice didn't put it beyond the other boy himself blabbing the truth. Useless whiner. They hadn't gotten anywhere serious anyway. The cold shoulder he felt in the pews of St. Ignatius Church was real enough. Alice and his parents had left San Jose for the avenues of San Francisco just a few short months later. The confused teen suspected that the move was in some part an effort to stop him going down the wrong path. His new school was decent, and he became fast friends with two other inquisitives, Paco and Cheese. His name might still be Walter on the roll call, but his new buddies were happy to roll with Alice. Paco and Cheese told him stories about older men cruising for younger guys in nearby Mount Davidson Park. By all reports, the spot was quite safe. Further into the city, the risks of being assaulted or even killed by a self-loathing trick after consummation of the deed was a larger risk or even someone pretending to be a trick, but who really just wanted to beat the living tar out of a queer. There was also the problem of Johnny Law. Alice had never cruised himself. He had already been busted by the police at Parkside Square during his first week in town. He could barely remember how it happened. What he could remember was Officer Collins putting his hand on his shoulder, just as he put his hands onto some kid's thigh. The lightning bolt of guilt, fear, and shame was not something he would forget for a long, long time, if he would forget it at all. He'd been dropped off in front of his new house with a warning, but he was wiser. He knew how to look out for the cops now. Mount Davidson was deserted most of the time. There was some rumor about straight kids climbing the giant cross in the park, but you know, talk is talk. His new friends talked incessantly about the park, in an offhanded way, almost to make it sound a bit old hat but Alice could tell they were obsessed. 
they talk about much rather wanting to head downtown into the Castro district. Fine, what are we waiting for, Alice dared, but none of them could quite manage to will the others to venture out, so it was Mount Davidson that became their beat. Not that he was queer, he thought. It wasn't about that. Square dare was a game that someone had cooked up. The idea was a simple one. Pick someone who was a square, someone who didn't look like they were actually cruising for late-night fun. If everyone agreed he was a square, you would go up in proposition. If he went off with you, you'd win the dare and the prize. The prize varied. One time, Cheese even put up his night's takings if Paco would proposition a trucker. Paco won the dare, but when Cheese had to pony up the money the next day, his haul for the evening was surprisingly light. The gang had come to notice an odd character wandering around the park in a brown jumper and a red balaclava. It looked like he was surveying the area. They had to duck behind trees, hoping they wouldn't be seen. On the third occasion, in hushed tones, Paco finally prompted Alice to proposition him, offering him free beer for three months if he could make a pass. Usually to win a square dare, you would have to go off with the guy and get down to business, but they agreed that he only had to proposition him to win the bet. Alice didn't care for beer that much, certainly not enough to risk the ever-potential beating, but he was the low man on the totem. If he wanted respect, he knew what he had to do. It would be his first. On this particular night, Alice was wearing a Hawaiian shirt and a loose jacket and denim jeans. The other two bagged at him for his outfit. The weather's so weird here, I don't know what to wear, he brushed them off. Paco asked Alice if he meant the climate in San Francisco or their spot behind the trees. You look better than him, Cheese whispered, marginally. With Cheese literally pushing him in the back, Alice went forward to the balaclava man. Hi, my name is, he offered. Leave me the fuck alone. Alice was only too ready to oblige. God, he was relieved. It only now occurred to him that he did not have the faintest idea what he would have done if Mr. Balaclava had taken up his offer. What had he been doing here these last few times? He wasn't ready for all this, was he? Yet as he walked back to his crew sheepishly, the adrenaline subsided and he felt a strange sense of pride come across him. Chi smiled at him with a distinctly male show of respect. Alice knew he had gone up a notch or ten. He was on a high. He was buzzing. The other two must have felt it as they left the park. The following night was a Friday. His parents were finally starting to get suspicious. Alice knew it. And yet they still let him go to Cheese's house for studying. Alice was still so high from last night that he was up for another dare. At around 11 p.m., they all spotted a tall man wearing a sports coat at the bottom of Lansdale Avenue, making his way up the track. He was quite striking, thought Alice. Two six-packs, bet Cheese with his customary whisper. Mr. Sportscoat wasn't a cop. They usually hunted in pairs, and they certainly didn't bother wasting plain-clothes detectives on this sort of low-priority work. And yet, when he had been busted by Officer Collins and DiGiorgio in the pinball arcade, he recalled, hadn't they also been plain-clothes? He couldn't remember now. The man continued jogging up the path towards them, not particularly fast, but steadily. Still, Alice held back. What was he worried about? He had propositioned a man wearing a balaclava. What was this by comparison? He wasn't an expert on the subject or anything, but he didn't think that a man with such square-looking clothes would assault him. None of the usual stings involved men who looked like they had just stepped out of an accountant's office. Still, there was always a first time for everything. Alice was a bundle of nervous energy. His apprehension, he realized, 
was that he found the shape of the man attractive. He had never really considered what type of man he was attracted to, at least not consciously, given the shame and the guilt this was to be expected. Come on, said Cheese. Yeah, joined in Paco. Double dare. Alice was mesmerized by the man, but managed to fire back disinterestedly. Why don't you guys go for it? There was silence for a moment. Paco and Cheese then retreated into the brush, leaving Alice exposed in the moonlight for Mr. Sport's coat. The prospect may have been a square guy who had a good-paying, stable job and a family, but, well, that was the appeal. He knew how to take charge by the way he was running. Whether quick and furtive or slow and assured, he would be in command. It would be reassuring for Alice to follow someone else's lead, whether it was Alice Cooper or Mr. Sportscoat. The latter had by now clocked Alice's presence and started to slow his pace. Alice's heart was beating resoundedly in his chest. He could barely hear the cicadas now. Mr. Sportscoat, lightly puffing, slowly came to a halt. Alice may have been a rookie, but he was quickly learning the ropes. With his mouth dry and his stomach full of butterflies, he turned to face his future pleasure head-on. He licked his lips and summoned all his will. My name is Alice, and I will take a dare. Good Doctor, written by Will Siegel, read by Daniel H. Thompson. It was another hectic night at Park Emergency Hospital, and Dr. Michael Nem was struggling to remember something important. He was standing in the waiting room, nurses buzzing every which way, the phones going madly, and patients groaning. Damn, it's so hard to concentrate in this place. What was it? Instinctively, the doctor went to check his clipboard. He wasn't holding it. He'd forgotten that, too. A large red-headed man with a gruesome gash on his arm cried out, "'Can I please have something for this?' he bellowed, gesturing down to his forearm. "'Hold on,' said the doctor faintly. A black-and-white TV was up in the waiting room. Dr. Nim hadn't cared for the television lately. Too depressing. Something about a rooftop serial killer. He'd probably be safe from that, though. He hadn't been to a rooftop lately. "'Oh, that's right. I was going to call for my next patient.' Damn. What was the name? He darted back into his small office, narrowly dodging two men carting someone on a stretcher between two rooms. So much pressure. It's hard to remember under pressure. He shouldn't have gotten involved in emergency medicine. He should have become a different kind of doctor. Maybe one of those skin doctors. What are they called? Oh, it doesn't matter. Back at his office, the table was a fine mahogany, but the filing on top of it was a bedlam. His clipboard was nowhere to be seen. 
he picked up a chart off his desk for Earl Stone, hoping it was his next patient. But no, he recalled seeing him the other week for his pruning accident. Goodness, the only thing I can remember, and it's from the other week. The doctor racked his brain. Was he going to call out? The phone was ringing, and the stink of disinfectant clung to everything in the hospital halls. The man with the cut cried out again. He tried to summon the name up from the depths of his mind, or maybe at least what was wrong with the patient. He hoped it wasn't a shooting or a bisection, because with this delay, things would be getting grim. He wished he was watching football at Kizar Stadium. You can really clear your mind watching football. You can strike up conversations with anyone you like without the risk of someone exsanguinating in the waiting room while you were distracted. Oh, now I remember. They're called dermatologists. He wandered back into the waiting room. Hopefully something would jog his memory. His finger scratched at his temple as his neurons worked overtime trying to spur his memory into action. They weren't feeling lucky. At that very moment, a man with messy blonde hair and a pale complexion stumbled into the emergency room. He was bleeding profusely from the thigh. Please help me! I'm dying! Hold your horses. I'm just trying to think. What happened? I tripped and fell. Hurry. Don't want to die. Hurry. The man was bordering on hysterical. Maybe that's why his story was utter nonsense. He was rather dirty, so he may have tumbled at some point, but Dr. Nim knew a stab wound when he saw one. Unless this man had tripped and fell into a butcher shop, the injury as described didn't seem above board. Once he got a clear look at his face, the patient seemed oddly familiar. Yes, he had seen him before. But where? A previous patient? Working at that nice little diner he liked? Where? What is your name, son? You seem familiar. My name? I'm Don! Help! I don't have a name! No name? You're a man with no name? No, you're not. That's crazy talk. The man wailed and grabbed his leg. Blood had congealed on the waiting room floor, and a woman sitting nearby put down her book, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and moved to the other side of the room. She was quite disturbed by the spectacle. Oh, now I remember. My next patient was the man with the cut on his arm. I should get him something for the pain. The doctor strode to a medicine cabinet and got some painkillers and a disposable cup of water. On top of the medicine cabinet was his clipboard. He tucked it underneath his shoulder. He returned to the waiting room and gave the pills and the cup to a grateful red-headed man, who had an awful lot of trouble raising them with one hand. The man on the floor was shrieking. Help me, you bald bastard! said the messy-haired man. Yes, I suppose that can't wait. You do have some money, right? Not as much as I should have. Some is as good as enough. First, do no harm is important, but make sure they can pay as a close second. A team of nurses came to help the man up onto the stretcher. It was going to be a long night, he felt it. The whole thing was highly suspicious. He probably should call the cops once the man was treated. He wrote that down. It might be important to remember. Too Much Linguini, written by Dave Allen, read by Niall McGowan.
There Harry went again, making fun of his weight. The Giorgio's wife had told her husband countless times to just stick up for himself, but the stout police inspector had a shorthand with Harry. Besides, at times like these, where a little physical exertion wouldn't go astray, he almost wished he took Harry's jibes more seriously. As Callahan scaled the fence in front of the stadium, the Giorgio went off looking for another entrance. Smashing a lock on a back gate, he entered and eventually found the fuse box for the stadium floodlights. He wanted Callahan to be able to see exactly what he was doing, while at the same time, dreading whatever Callahan would be doing if he actually caught the suspect. Hopefully it would be easy for Harry to take Scorpio into custody, and the two wouldn't have to make their way into the arena. The Giorgio was pretty certain the stadium was empty, but you could never be sure. There was a groundskeeper, after all. He could only imagine what Callahan was up to, though, for the life of himself, he tried not to. He looked into the fuse box. Sure, the secretary looked a little bit complicated, but there were four main floodlights to the stadium and four main levers. The Giorgio respected Callahan for doing what needed to be done, for what he himself could not do. It was the old saying that you might eat the sausages, but you don't want to see how they're made. In a morbid way, this was a particularly apt metaphor, as sometimes Callahan left suspects' faces looking exactly like sausage meat. Callahan did what society needed to be done, but at the same time could never accept needed to be done. Callahan was a suppository of society's hypocrisy. Well, most of society. The Giorgio had accepted it some time ago. He came to accept it as part of the social order. He once heard someone say that civilization was a thin crust over a volcano, and, in a rare philosophical moment for the rather non-complicated man, he mused that the job of the police force was to maintain that crust, or at least beat back the raves nibbling away at it. Callahan, though, was like a pit bull terrier who could commit violence on command when needed. And unfortunately, like a pit bull, once off the leash, he could not be controlled. When the world said, you want to get nuts? Callahan would be the first to respond, come on, let's get nuts. Collateral damage was an inevitability, and one only hoped it was minimal. The Giorgio knew this, and he knew that he couldn't do it himself. It simply wasn't in him. Now he heard the commotion. From his vantage point, he saw the minute figure of Scorpio running into the middle of the field. Now! He turned the levers. One, two, three. Light burst onto the entire stadium like the 4th of July. Scorpio turned around and placed his hands in the air. Harry fired his cannon, the sound echoing around the stadium. Scorpio sort of flipped. He couldn't describe it, and fell to the grass dramatically. Had Harry killed him? The Giorgio finally saw Harry's lips move. His forty-four pointed down at Scorpio. No, the suspect was still alive. He did not think that his colleague would kill him, if for no other reason than that almost definitely never see Anne-Marie Deacon again. Cold corpse or warm-tormented soul, if he did. Again, he was going to let the pit bull do his work. He would eat the ensuing sausages, but dang if he was going to see them get made. He saw enough ugliness in his day-to-day. He could now hear the suspect's scream ring out around the stadium, and it would take a lot of Jameson to get the ringing of it out of his ear. He could taste the hangover already. The Giorgio was basically an optimist. The more he thought about it, the more he realized the girl might, slim as it was, still be alive. 
He ran towards the two on the field. The gut-churning reality of what Callahan was doing, playing havoc with the heavy linguini juggling around inside of him. Callahan was standing over Scorpio, breathing heavily, menacing the suspect like a junkyard dog. The battery, he heard Harry grunt to Scorpio. Manhole. Harry shouted to the Giorgio to get to the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. Get to that manhole and get the ambulance there. Fire Brigade too. The jaws of life might be needed. Right, Harry, he said, starting to exit the stadium as briskly as his ample frame would allow. Callahan would have gone with him, but he had to guard the suspect. If Scorpio wasn't in the middle of a field, Harry could probably have just handcuffed the jerk to a railing and left him for the backups in uniform. Guess he didn't trust the Giorgio to even just guard a wounded man. Distrustful prick. The Giorgio was on the road and had dispatched all available to Battery Spencer. He still didn't know whether Callahan was sending him after a person or a body. He didn't want to know. Hope was a dangerous thing in his line of work, and he didn't want to have to delve into that territory. He still had 15 minutes where he didn't need to know. If he was greeted by a person and not a body, all Callahan's suspect torture would be something he could easily live with. He prayed to a god he didn't believe in, that the ambulance would get there before he did to give him some good news. God willing, she would be in hospital, the creep would be in a cell, and he would spend a few days waiting for her to recover so that she'd be ready for the pretrial. He hoped he had enough ice for his Jameson, although after the third or fourth drink, it hardly made much of a difference. Even a hangover, after a happy ending, tasted kind of sweet. But there was no happy ending for Anne-Marie Deacon. He got out of the car and made his way down the granite landing. He didn't need to be Sigmund Freud to read the room, or the cliff face, as it were. A sea of uniformed men looked up at him soberly. Right at that moment, two men in white lab coats clumsily emerged from a hole in the ground, pulling up with them the distinctly limp shape of a naked teenage girl. Ironically, before he had consoled himself that Callahan's barbarism would have been justified if they found her alive, now that they found her dead, he could justify the barbarism even more. He wished that he could have savored watching Callahan twisting his foot on the little creep's gunshot wound. The attending doctor dutifully rechecked for vital signs, but it was clear there was no sign of resuscitation. The Giorgio was no pit bull. This stuff still got to him. He pulled himself back from the immediate crime scene to contemplate. He now knew he wouldn't be consuming anything other than Jameson for the rest of the day, and possibly even part of the following day. He thought of Officer Collins, too. He had been breathing and alert just a couple of days ago as well. Harry had told him in so many ways to just get over it. And this was the difference between Callahan and him. Harry was used to losing partners. It was almost a black cloud that surrounded him. There were even those superstitious types who mused that Dirty Harry was cursed. Sometimes the boys at the station would scare each other by one telling the other that they'd been assigned as Callahan's new partner in a strangely dark prank. Of course, to the Giorgio, it was obvious that Callahan was not cursed. Harry was on the edge of morality, mortality, legality, society, humanity, sanity. Take your pick. That is what he was for, what he was intended to do. If people had a purpose, 
then that was his. But his partners were not. They were like the Georgia or anyone else, so it was not surprising that they got killed. Did losing partners affect him? Would seeing another dead body tonight affect him at all? The dawn was coming up now, all blue. He looked back up the hill to his car. Harry had arrived now and was surveying the somber scene below. The Giorgio waved at him. His stomach was playing up again. Damn. Too much linguine. Ooh, I like when Dad talks tough. He sounds like Dirty Harry. You gotta ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Oh, Mr. Harry. You're really not gonna like what I have to say. Behave, Norma. Written by David Allen, read by Karen Sims. The only thing harder than a cop's life is a cop's wife. Norma couldn't remember where she'd first heard that. Heck, for all she knew, she'd made it up herself. It rang true to her in an all-new manner in light of her husband's recent brush with death. How many people get shot by a machine gun and live to tell the tale? He could quite easily have been added to the list of the killer's victims. But when she could stop being angry or scared, and this was usually just for a moment, she was amazed at the irony. Her husband had grown up in Farmington, hands down the roughest and most crime-ridden area in the entire state of California, and here he was almost dying in San Francisco of all places. It seemed like some kind of cosmic joke, but she didn't believe in such things. The universe was indifferent. Life, just be that way. She took her husband's narrow escape as a win and left it at that. Because, much like her husband Chico Gonzalez, Norma was tougher than she looked. To marry a cop meant you were either naive, stupid or determined. Norma, for all her faults, was neither naive nor stupid. She had faced criticism from her family and community back home in southern Arkansas for marrying a Catholic, of all things. She looked at the licentiousness around her and wondered if her family would have treated her even worse if she had become one of them, rather than marrying a Mexican. Norma Williams, becoming Norma Gonzalez, felt like crossing the Rubicon. She was grateful that whatever she got from her family, it would be nothing compared with what they faced on a daily basis for her cultural betrayal back in Little Rock. She looked around the rooftop trying to distance herself from these unhelpful thoughts. It was an open-air rooftop atrium with various patients on deck chairs or stretchers. Just stop thinking and enjoy the bright sunlight. The sunlight, in combination with her lime green PVC coat, was making her hot and steamy and possibly messing with her head chemistry as well. Yes, the Scorpio killer had really done a number on her as well as her husband, it would seem. She wondered how her husband's injury would change things. Would he be received as a coward who would quit when the going got tough? Or as a hero wise to exit the force after putting his life successfully on the line? To be truthful, she didn't care all that much. She was just glad he was alive. She felt he should quit while he was ahead and that he would most probably not be so lucky the next time. 
For someone who consciously rejected any overall intentionality behind the universe, she was surprisingly suspicious about such things. Maybe he could get a desk job of some kind. He had more academic credentials than most cops, which would surely count for something. A minority officer who took one in the line of duty. Surely they could make room for him. In some kind of outreach capacity, perhaps. He could play both sides of the street now he had gained respect amongst the rank and file. Even his partner, Harry Callahan, dipped his hat. From what she'd heard, anyway. Still, this is all her husband's choice. She would have to go along with it, right or wrong. Not that she expected him to stay. Surely the chances he would remain on the force, even as a paper shuffler, were minimal. He would probably become a teacher and get a plum job, with their future children hopefully respecting their ex-cop father. She must ask Harry about how his wife dealt with all this. She was slightly on edge about the inspector's imminent arrival to the hospital. She felt a certain attraction to Harry, and even though it had been reciprocated at times, Norma couldn't be sure. We've all been there. She had felt her heart skip when she'd had him on the phone setting up today's visiting hours. The adrenaline of the situation had heightened her attraction to him. The irony is that her parents would have been thrilled with him as her husband. It wouldn't be exactly a May-December relationship, but there was still a sizable age gap. Still, if it were a toss-up between Harry and Chico, her parents barely would have noticed it. She blushed. Why was she having these thoughts again? She caressed her belly gently. She had dreamt of a tryst with Harry, to her own internal embarrassment. Maybe her parents were right. Stick with her own kind. Of course, he might not even go for it. What kind of wife must he have? What was the competition? She knew her looks would hardly make Angie Dickinson or Jean Tierney jealous. Still, more than a few men had found her slim, delicate face and long blonde locks fetching. She figured Angie or Jean could make men do pretty much anything, but didn't necessarily have to degrade themselves to do so. The things she would do with Harry? She had no idea. Oh Lord, what was she thinking? Her husband had the reaper's scythe giving him a haircut and she was pondering straying, with his partner no less. Since arriving in an unfamiliar town with no social support, no work or study to keep her in check, a husband out all hours of the night, her want for attention and affection was bringing her whole internal world crashing down around her. If nothing else, her interest in psychoanalysis had ingrained in her the need for self-knowledge, and maybe that self-knowledge would help her dodge a 44 magnum-sized love bullet. Norma saw her husband's stretcher being wheeled in at the opposite end of the room. She rushed to smile, put down the women's magazine and demurely skipped over to give him a kiss. Now you have to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well... Do ya, punks? Badge in the Water Written by Tim Kong Read by Sean German Harry opened the door to the bar, exposing harsh sunlight into the dark interior. As the door swung shut behind him, 
the inspector's vision adjusted to the dim scenery. There were several rows of empty booths to his immediate right. Beyond the pool tables in the middle of the floor was a long wooden bar, illuminated by red and yellow lighting beaming from neon signage on the walls. Harry walked up to a lone bartender, tending to some glass mugs. What can I get you? asked the host disinterestedly. Budweiser or Coors? Harry took a little time in responding, no difference, whatever's on tap. Their exchange complete, Harry now noticed another presence in the establishment. If he was on the clock, he would have noticed it straight away, like a western gunslinger entering a saloon, but once he was off duty, his radar always seemed to take a back seat. He turned to see Bresler sitting on a stool at the opposite end of the bar. The bartender placed Harry's drink on a coaster and busied himself with a dish rack. Al, Harry said, it's not like you to call me for a social acquaintance at this time of the day. Look, I'm not here to chew you out, Harry, replied Bresler. God knows I've done enough of that lately. I just wanted to break some news. There's been a shuffling of deck chairs and we're both being shipped out of homicide. You'll be reassigned to stakeout and I'm being moved to missing persons. I wanted to tell you that personally. Bresler fiddled with his drink. Jameson, Harry mused, his radar returning. Harry was perplexed. That's not what he expected. He thought there would be an inquiry, at least. Things had been strangely silent from the fifth floor since the quarry episode. Bresler narrowly avoided the question with another statement. When the divers finally pulled up Scorpio's body yesterday, they weren't too happy with your badge also being dredged up from the water. The tabloids are running the photos in this afternoon's edition. They've been questioning the integrity of all our SFPD officers. Harry couldn't help but laugh. Wait, you mean the bosses are overreacting because some divers retrieved a shitty piece of metal from the... Bresler interrupted him. It wasn't a good look, Harry. Hey, you got the bad guy. Nobody's pining for him, but it's been overshadowed by the optics of your badge. Harry could barely maintain his frustration. Intercourse the badge, Al. I got that son of a bitch before he could kill anymore. And after hitting roadblock after roadblock within my own goddamn force, you might think it was a spur of the moment to throw it away, but at the time it felt like I was working in spite of the system. Bresler tried to be diplomatic. I don't disagree with you, Harry, but Christ, an order is an order. Harry lowered his voice. Can't the mayor do anything? He must at least be a little happy with how this turned out. He didn't need to call in any favors. No kids were hurt. No planes diverted. No kids hurt, Harry? asked Bresler incredulously. Harry stopped himself. No, he paused. Not really. Bresler arched up his back with an ace up his sleeve. There was severe whiplash, one serious threat of a lawsuit, and one of them, Chester, he got some serious PTSD. Harry went quiet. Never heard of it. You got fucking lucky, said Bresler, exasperated. Harry disagreed. Luck ain't got nothing to do with it. That's another thing, Bresler said. I heard you're still breaking that line out. Well, that stuff might play in the middle of nowhere, but not when you're right outside a city bank in front of witnesses, for Christ's sake. There was silence for a few moments between the two, as they both weighed out what was worth verbalizing. So, tendered Harry, no inquiry? It doesn't seem so, concurred Bresler. The mayor seemed to be holding firm. Harry didn't have much more to say except his usual contempt. He didn't mean to give it to Al, but who else was there? Stakeout, eh? Harry thought out loud. What do they expect me to do? 
subsidize the city's donut makers? Bresler sighed. We both know it's a waste of your skills, Harry, but there's only so much I can do. I'll be having as much fun as you, working on bad leads for finding missing people and running into nothing but dead ends. Harry finished the rest of his beer. Who's running stakeout these days, he inquired. I've been told Briggs is being transferred over. They think he has the temperament and experience to handle both crazy killers and a maverick cop like you. Harry knew Briggs and could not help but chuckle internally. That makes my day. Bresler looked Harry straight in the eye. Look, Briggs can make life real difficult for you if and when you get on his bad side. Unlike me, he holds grudges, so be careful. Harry stood up from his chair. Well, I look forward to the donut breaks. But seriously, Al, this is ridiculous. If they want San Francisco's crooks to run wild, then they've come up with a fine plan. Bresler agreed. It's not our problem anymore, Harry. Actions have consequences, and unfortunately it all comes to an end. At least I'll get to spend more time with my kids before they're off to college. Harry lightly rubbed out a crease on his Giuseppe's sports coat. Cheers to that, Lieutenant. You know you'll be in missing persons, missing me. Bresler smiled. I think you're being a bit optimistic there, Dirty Harry. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. That is why I have got to catch him this time. To show these kids that the example he sets is a first-class ticket to nowhere. Oh, Ed, you sounded like Dirty Harry just then. Really? Uh Uh-huh. 